Now, I want to thank y'all for being here. I want to thank the praise team um, for leading us. Uh, I love that song, and we are so incredibly blessed by God, amen, and He protects us. He's been with us in such a crazy time, in the time of COVID and whatnot, and even in a time where we're gathered, not even in our sanctuary, but the fact that we're, we're with Him right now brings me comfort. I hope it brings you comfort as well. well. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn them now to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, we're continuing on in our sermon series titled Joy in the Midst of Darkness. As you're turning there, and again in way of introducing uh, our message this morning, I want you to know that it's actually a fact, based on what I've seen at least, or read and studied, but the average adult male makes about 35,000 choices a day. Did you know that? Uh, the average adult, not, uh, did I say adult male? Um, the average adult, period, okay, adult or female, I don't know why I said male, I just realized that, the average adult makes about 35,000 different choices a day. Just, just kind of let that sink in for a moment. That's a lot of choices. Um, and again, I am no mathematician. I may have totally messed this up, but based on my math, take it for what you will, 24 hours in a day, right? Average person, will say, sleeps about seven hours a day. They're not making any type of choices, right, or any type of conscious choices, at least in that moment. Therefore, that means that the average adult makes roughly 2,000 decisions per hour or one decision every two seconds. Now, that's just kind of amazing. When I, when I read that, I was like, wow, that's, that's crazy. Okay, let me just kind of maybe paint the picture for you a little bit more here. Okay, for example, since you've sat down, you have probably already decided where you're going to eat lunch when we get done. Have we not? Hmm? Shake your head, I know it's true. Uh, you have decided uh, what time of day you're going to take your Sunday morning nap. You have decided uh, maybe what you're going to get done around the house. Uh, others of you maybe have tried to decide, maybe even right now, whether or not you're going to listen to me this morning or you're going to tune me out. In fact, you're probably making the choice of maybe, hey, maybe I should have my Sunday nap right now. This chair is pretty comfortable. Listen, just know I'm six foot four. I can see really good up here, and I'm always looking for sermon illustrations. So snore away, buddy. Snore away. Now, listen, I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, of course, in saying all that. Mostly, I don't want you to fall asleep on me. But, but on a more serious note now, what I do want you to understand is that every single one of us makes choices every day. And the way choice works, listen to this, the way choice works is that we make our choices and then our choices, they turn around and they make us. Okay, in other words, our, our choices are critical because they end up defining who we are as a person, which therefore means we need to make every decision or every choice count. Now, I bring that up to you this morning because as we learned last week, the Apostle Paul, he made the choice, he made the decision to give up everything he had earned everything he had attained so that he could follow the teachings of Christ. Okay, for example, Paul himself, we talked about this last Sunday, but in verses 4 through 6, he kind of lists out all these things. He says, I'm a Jew, uh, I'm a part of the tribe of Benjamin, I'm a Pharisee. You could have labeled me as someone who had arrived, someone who had made it in life, yet in the very next verse he says, but everything that was gained to me, I have now considered to be a loss and not only did he count those things to be a loss, but as a result of that, Paul went from being highly esteemed and highly respected by his peers to being mocked by his peers, by being chastised and chased by his peers, by being imprisoned by his peers, ultimately by being 
killed by his peers. Now again, keep in mind, that was all due to the choice that Paul made. The decision that Paul made. If Paul had just decided, you know what, I want to keep my prestige. I kind of like that. Uh, If Paul wanted to just keep his status, right, none of that would have happened. None of that. Yet Paul makes the decision to leave all of those things behind. And the question that I want you and I to consider this morning is why? Why? Why would Paul forsake a life of luxury, a life of comfort, just so that he can replace that with the life of trial, with the life of, of suffering and pain? In other words, in, in life, listen to this, we, we typically give up something so that we can attain something even better, right? That's just kind of how choice works a lot of times. Okay, for example, if a person quits their job, usually, usually, it's because they found a better job. They found a job that pays more, has more benefits. If, if a person marries someone, usually, hopefully at least, it's because they see the benefit of doing that, of not being single anymore, being, being together with someone else for the rest of their life. But let's just say for a moment that you win the lottery. Okay, never going to happen probably, but let's just say for a moment, you win the lottery, and for the sake of the illustration, let's say it's $10 million. You, you won a, a $10 million lottery ticket, right? And so the people, they, they come to your house, they, they knock on your door, they hand you the check, but then you say, no, I'm good. I don't, I'm good. I, I don't need that. I, I found something even better than that. Now, now everyone would want to know what that is, right? Well, you see, in a similar way, that's what Paul is, is kind of saying. In chapter 3, he's saying, look, look, I've achieved all these things. I've received all of these things. They're highly sought after. They're, they're valuable in the eyes of many. But what I once found shiny, I now find dull. What I once found as being really important, I now find that very insignificant, very unimportant. What, what I once treasured, I now see, as Paul puts it in verse 8, you've got to love it, as dung, as dung. Right? And so Paul makes the choice to leave all of those things behind. And again, the question that I want us to try to answer this morning is why? Why? Because there, there's got to be a reason, right? There, there's there's got to be some type of, of, of benefit that Paul is getting from that. Well, well, guess what? There is. There is. That's what I want to talk to you about today. And what I want to talk to you about today is the benefits of being a believer. The benefits of being a Believers. So listen, I know we've already briefly looked at this passage last Sunday, but I told you last Sunday, get ready, because we're going to look at it much more in detail. That's what we're going to do today. But, but look with me now, beginning in verse 7. Paul says, But everything that was gained to me I have now considered to be a loss because of Christ. Okay, in other words, that's, that's Paul making the decision to, to leave his former way of living behind so that he can follow the teachings of Christ. And now look at what he says, beginning in verse 8. Because in this section, Paul is going to list out the reasons why he's saying what he says in verse 7. He's going to say, listen, this is the benefits of being a believer. This is the reason why I'm doing these things. He says, again, in verse 8, more than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, 
being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. See, in these four verses, and they are jam-packed, but Paul explains in these four verses why he was willing to leave everything he had known behind. And in doing so, what Paul does is he lists out five different benefits of being a believer. Okay, these five benefits, they're going to act as our, as our outline today, our guide today. And so for those of you who maybe take notes and want to know what these are, I'll just go ahead and tell you what they are, and then we're going to dive in to explain what they actually look like. Um, but they are, number one, knowledge. Number two, position. Number three, righteousness. Number four, fellowship. And number five, glory. Or to say it like this, you could say it like, you could say it like this right here. Knowledge of Christ, position in Christ, righteousness by Christ, fellowship with Christ, and glory like Christ. Again, these are the five benefits of being a believer. And what I want you to begin to understand this morning is that these benefits aren't just for the Apostle Paul, but they are also for you. They are also for me or for anyone who has made a decision to follow Christ if they have accepted Jesus as their Savior and Lord. All right, so let's just jump right in because there's a, there's a lot going on today. Let's jump right in. Let's begin to discuss this first benefit that Paul lists out for us here which again, excuse me, is knowledge, okay? Knowledge, look with me again at what Paul says in verse 8. He says, more than that, I also consider everything to be a loss. Why, Paul, why, why are you saying those things? Well, look at what he says next. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, there's, there's the benefit. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. Now, did you know... Did you know that the Bible describes believers as people who know God? That's, that's how the, the Bible describes us, people who know God. Let me give you some scriptures, okay? Jesus himself says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Okay, furthermore, John chapter 17 Jesus prays to God on our behalf. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. And then in 1 John chapter 5, John tells us that knowing God is the whole reason why Jesus came. He says, and we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know the true God. As believers, we, we know God. Okay, we know God. It's, it's, it's demonstrated all throughout the scriptures. Now, with that being said, let me just clarify here that you can know someone without really knowing that person, right? That's a very important thing for us to grasp and understand. For example, when I was, when I was young, when I was growing up, I was a big Jerry Rice fan. Okay, you, so you even know who Jerry Rice is? I hope you do. One of the greatest NFL players of all time, I believe. I was a huge Jerry Rice fan. I could tell you how tall Jerry Rice was. I could tell you how, or how much he weighed. I could tell you where he went to college. I could tell you how many um, receiving yards he would get in a game or how many touchdowns he averaged in a game. But listen, just because I knew all those things didn't really mean that I personally knew Jerry Rice, right? I mean, I knew a lot about him. I, I could spit that stuff off. But I didn't know him on a personal level. But guess what? At one point in my life, I got to meet 
Jerry Rice. I got to hang out with Jerry Rice. His parents actually live in my parents' neighborhood, and so oftentimes he would come home. I got to, to meet him and hang out with him, right? And so I went from knowing a lot about Jerry Rice to personally knowing Jerry Rice. There's that transition, and get this, the same can be said about for us when it comes to God. Okay, for example, a, a, lot, of, a lot of people, a lot of people, uh, if you were to go up to them and ask, do you know God? A lot of people are going to say, well, yeah, I know God. And they begin to spout off, spout off certain uh, attributes of God. Well, well, God is holy. Well, God is, is, is sovereign. They're, they're going to explain certain doctrines that describe who God is. But again, that doesn't necessarily prove that they personally know God. Well, that just means that they intellectually know a lot about who he is, but again, that does not make you a believer now, does it? You see, when Paul uses the word knowing, listen to this, in verse 8, he's referring to a personal experience. He's referring to a personal involvement, a personal familiarity. It's derived from the Greek word gnosko. Gnosko, and it means to have far more than an intellectual and theological knowledge of God. Instead, this word knowing or knowledge is speaking about a personal relationship with God. And that's what Paul is saying here. Paul's saying, I don't just know who God is. I don't just have a lot of facts about God. No, through my belief in Jesus, I personally know God now. And I personally have a relationship with God now too. And, and, and look, just look at how excited this makes Paul. He says in verse 8, More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value. Of, I, I treasure this of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And, and notice just how he refers to the Lord. He doesn't say Christ the Lord. Paul says Christ my Lord. Which again points to this idea of personal knowledge of a personal relationship with God. So question for you. Question for you. Do you know God in that way? Do you know God in that way? Or let me just maybe rephrase it like this. Do you know God or do you know God? Because there is a two, that's just a very big difference right there. Do you just know a lot about God? Have you learned a lot about him in Sunday school? And that's great. You've learned about what he has done on messages like Easter when we talk about the gospel. But in addition to that, do you personally know God? Do you personally have a relationship with him? So the only way, the only way that we can know God in this deep, personal, intimate way that I'm talking about right here is when we experience being spiritually born again. Okay, example, John 3, 3 says, Jesus, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so while our first birth is physical, our second birth is spiritual, and it only occurs when we invite Christ into our lives. And when we invite Christ into our lives, we will know God. We will have a knowledge of God, a personal relationship with Him. All right, so Paul says we have knowledge of Christ. That's, that's the first benefit. But now he's going to go on and he's going to give us another benefit, and that is position. Position, or, or I'll say it like this, position in Christ. Okay, let me show you. Look at the first five words Paul uses in verse 9. He says, 
and be found in him. Okay, there's those three important words. Found in him. That's the second benefit, position. All right, now, now one of Paul's favorite things that he does in his writings is he describes Christian believers as people who are in Christ. Right, that's how he describes this right here in verse 8. And see, I love that because what that does is that makes us unique from every other religion. Okay, A Buddhist never speaks of being in Buddha. You'll never see a Buddha say, I am in Buddha. You're never going to see a Muslim say, I am in Muhammad. I am in Muhammad right now. You're never going to hear a Hindu say, I am in Brahma. I am in Shiva or all the other thousands of gods they believe in. But a Christian will say, I am in Christ. That makes us stand out. That makes us unique. And I love that. I love that Paul references that. In fact, in the scriptures, the Bible says 87 times that we are in Christ. And if you're still wondering what that means, then know that it means that we are united in Christ through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. Okay, Paul describes it in another place in Galatians 2.20. He says it like this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives what? In me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So that's Paul's description of being in Christ. But let's just drill down a little bit farther. Let's make it a little bit more practical. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, let me illustrate it to you like this, okay? Let's just say that when the service ends, okay, when service ends, you get up out of your chair, you're heading out to the parking lot, and, and, and you get in your car, right? You get out on the road. And if I were to see you, right, in your car, then I would immediately notice, not necessarily you, but I would notice your car, okay? In other words, I might be able to see you through the windshield if it's not too dirty, but when I look at you, I look at your car. I see your car because I see that you are in your car, okay? And let's just say later on you drive to your house, you might wave at me through your kitchen window, but when I look at you, I see now that you're in your house. That's the first thing I'm going to notice. She is in her house, or he is in her house. And then let's just say that if you told me you're going to fly on a plane and look for me when I pass by, if I look up, and even if I know that you're in there, I don't necessarily see you. I see what? The plane. Why? Because you're in the plane. Okay? So to be in Christ means this. When God looks at you now, he doesn't just see you. He sees Christ who lives in you. In other words, he, he doesn't see your imperfections now. He doesn't see your failures now. He doesn't see your sins now. But instead, he sees the Savior who came and lived this life that we were supposed to live and died for us so that we can now live in Christ. Okay, and so the point I'm trying to make to you this morning is this. You can't go 60 miles, miles an hour on your own, but in a car, you can. You can't travel 500 miles per hour, but in a plane, you can. And you can't get to heaven by yourself, but in Christ, you can. Okay? That is a monumental belief for the Christian. That is a benefit that we should rejoice in if we are believers today. So we have knowledge. We know God. We have position. We are in Christ. Paul keeps going. He's going to keep going because he wants to show you this is amazing. Number three, there's a third benefit, righteousness. 
He says, I don't just have knowledge. I don't just have position, but I also have righteousness. Look at me at what he says in verse 9. Again, he says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Now, if you remember what Paul said in the previous verses, then you'll know that if anyone worked hard for their own righteousness, then it was Paul. Paul was always doing this. Paul was always doing that right, in an attempt to try to uh, attain righteousness. And so I, I got to think that the happiest day in Paul's life is when he realized that righteousness wasn't based on his efforts or his work, but on the efforts in the work of Christ who died on his behalf. Now, let's just examine this word righteousness for a moment because it's, it's a pretty important word, right? Uh, in fact, I'll give you another number, 540 times righteousness or righteous is mentioned in the Bible, we need to understand what this word means, and it means this. It means that you have a right standing before God. You are right with God so that you can be accepted by God. That's what righteousness means. And again, you see, Paul spent much of his life trying to, to manufacture this righteousness and try to produce this righteousness somehow through his works, through his life, through these ceremonies, through these rituals. But the happiest day of his life is when he realized it cannot be produced. It can only be provided or given to you by Christ. For example, have you ever been to a -A Build-A-Bear workshop? Can you just raise your hand? Have you ever been there? Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay, yeah, yeah, they're, they're really all over the place. Is there one in Tupelo? I think there is one in Tupelo, right? Listen, for those of you who maybe are in the dark on this, let me just briefly explain to you the idea of a Build-A-Bear, okay? But the idea of a, of a Build-A-Bear workshop is that instead of picking out a teddy bear or some type of, of bear or animal, uh, instead of picking one out, you get to build your own instead, okay? So you get to decide how big it's going to be, uh, you get to decide how, what, what color it's going to be. You get to decide if it's going to wear any clothes or not. Right? The list goes on and on. It, it really is a genius idea. But listen, here's the deal. Here's the deal. I've discovered that much of the world is fixated on this approach when it comes to spiritual things. Okay, it's what a lot of people call a build-a-bear theology. You get to build your own God. You, you, you get to build your own road to heaven. You get to build your own righteousness. And and listen, whatever you want to build, whatever you want to create in this spiritual world of yours that you're creating, that's just fine. You build it however you please. That's what the world would say. But listen, the problem with that is that that is an unattainable goal. Okay, You can build a bear. That's attainable. You cannot build your own theology. You cannot build your own form of righteousness. That is unattainable. Because righteousness, listen to this, righteousness is not built on our determination, it's built on imputation. Let me say that again, righteousness is not built on determination, it is built on imputation. Listen, I'm not trying to stand up here and give you all these big churchy words this morning, but I want you to get this and understand this. Yes, righteousness is a very important word that we need to understand, but this word imputation is equally important for us to understand as well because we receive righteousness through imputation, and imputation means that righteousness is given to you or is credited to you by faith. Okay, I'll briefly give you an example of this. Romans chapter 4, Bible says this, What then will we say that Abraham 
our forefather according to the flesh has found. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. That's kind of what Paul's been talking about in chapter 3. But now listen to what he says in verse 3. It says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited or imputed to him for righteousness. Okay? In other words, even though Abraham had a lot of acclaim and status, Amongst his peers, he was only seen as being righteous before God once he believed in God and was credited or imputed his righteousness. Okay, so how does all this work? Well, let me just explain it to you this way. Jesus Christ has a perfect record. Okay, Jesus Christ has a perfect record. He never sinned. You and I, imperfect record. We always sin. So biblical righteousness is when God takes Jesus' perfect record and He superimposes it over our imperfect life. Okay, that's imputation. We're in Christ. When God sees us, He sees Christ. It's what the Bible calls the great exchange. Okay, another verse for you. I'll give it to you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says it like this. really sums it all up, I think. It says, He... That being God made the one who did not know sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, that's you and me, so that in him, that's imputation, we might become the righteousness of God. That's the benefit. Okay, that sums everything up, I think, in one verse. Okay, I'll say it one more way to help you understand this. God treated Jesus Christ like you and I deserve to be treated so that he could treat you like Jesus Christ deserved to be treated. Let that sink in. That's the great exchange we've been given. That's, that's the righteousness we have been credited or gifted by God. And that is an amazing, an amazing benefit for the believer. Okay, so we have knowledge, we have position, we have righteousness. Let me give you a fourth one now. Fourth benefit we have as believers, fellowship. Fellowship. Look with me now at what Paul says in verse 10. He says, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship, there's the word, of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Now, for those of you who are paying close attention this morning, you may be wondering what's going on here. Okay, verse 8, Paul says that he... That, that there's this personal knowledge or, or knowing Christ. That's a benefit for the believer. But now, as we look at verse 10, Paul says that fellowship with Christ is a benefit of the believer as well. So question, what's the difference between those two things? I mean, aren't they more or less the same? Well, they're certainly connected to each other, but what I think Paul is hoping that we will understand here is that while Paul already has a personal relationship with Christ, he still longs fellowship with Christ. He wants to know Christ more and more and more and more. Okay, for example, one of the things that I love about Paul is that not one time in the Scriptures... Do you see him become content? Do you see Paul can become complacent in his relationship or his walk with the Lord? I mean, here is a guy who has traveled the world. Here is a guy who has shared the gospel. Here is a guy who has established churches and has started churches. Here is a guy who has poured into countless individuals, but not one time is it recorded where Paul says, well, I guess I'll call that good. And then just more or less retire from the Christian faith, more or less become complacent in his walk with Christ. No, no, instead, Paul longs to not only have a personal knowledge of Christ or God, but to have fellowship with him as well. 
And now notice the wording he uses in verse 10. He says, I want you to know you in the power of the resurrection and I want to know you in suffering and pain as well. In other words, that's Paul saying, God, I want to know you on the mountaintops of life when everything is going great, but I want to know you in the valleys too. God, God, I want to know you in the good times, but, but God, I want to know you in the bad times as well. That's what it means to have a, a personal knowledge of God, or not only a personal knowledge of God, but a fellowship with God is a continual thing. And now listen, I, I, I know a lot of us, we don't like this idea of suffering. I mean, who does? Right? Or this idea that it's God's will for us to, for some reason, go through chapters of suffering, seasons of suffering. But the fact of the matter is that oftentimes that is indeed God's plan for us. And listen, while we may not understand that, we do need to understand that there is purpose in our pain. Okay, now let me just be clear here. I don't think that purpose is so that we can feel abandoned by God. I don't think that purpose is so that we can feel like God is trying to just squish us like a bug. I actually think the exact opposite of that. Because in my observations in life, I've noticed that when a true believer experiences pain, when they experience suffering, they don't actually grow distant from God. They end up growing closer to God. They end up having a stronger fellowship with God as a result. For, for example, when I was in college, you, maybe not, maybe, you may not know this story, but when I was in college, my mom was very unexpectedly diagnosed with a brain tumor. I will never forget going to school and everything was normal. And when I got home, everybody was home. My dad was already home and they're looking at me and I didn't know what was happening. And I remember receiving that news and just being absolutely crushed because we didn't see it coming. And listen, that was a difficult difficult season for me, for my other brothers, for my dad, especially for my mom to have to go through. But listen, I cannot tell you, I cannot tell you how close my family felt to God or was close to God in that time. In fact, just recently, and I kid you not, just recently, my mom and dad, I was talking with them, talking about that season of our lives, and they were just telling me, said, Jeremy, we, we just grew in our faith tremendously. During that time, and I got to think in a similar way, that's what Paul is reminding us of here. That if we are a believer, yes, Christ, he's going to walk alongside you during those trouble-free seasons of life when everything seems to be going the way you want. But he also, he, he wants to and he will walk alongside you during those difficult times, during those difficult seasons. That's, that's, the, that's the fellowship that we can experience as God's children. It's a great benefit for us as believers. Okay, so in these things, in these things, or these things, it's what led Paul to leave everything he had known behind. He, he counted his personal claim, his, his personal status as loss in comparison to becoming a believer and a child of God because he realized that in making that choice, that decision, he gained the benefit of knowledge of Christ, position in Christ, righteousness by Christ, fellowship with Christ. And then lastly, one more thing, he realized that one day he would gain the benefit of glory like Christ. Glory. This is the final benefit I want you to see today. So look with me at verse 11 as Paul concludes this section of his teaching by saying this. 
He says, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection. There's that word or, or that reference of glory from among the dead. Now listen, don't misunderstand this verse because Paul is not doubting whether or not he's going to one day be resurrected. Okay, Paul knows that he's going to be. He has talked with this language of receiving Christ's righteousness. It alludes to the fact that he believes that he will be resurrected. If he didn't believe that, then all of what he said would be for nothing. Okay, so Paul believes that he's being resurrected, but please understand, so, so please understand, this is not Paul doubting here. So this is Paul being humble. He's simply expressing his humility. He's expressing his unworthiness to receive this type of benefit of glory in resurrection from the dead. You see, all throughout his teaching, Paul, Paul never once lost his sense of unworthiness. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I am the least of all the apostles. Ephesians 3, I am the very least of all the saints. 1 Timothy 1, I am the chief of all sinners. And so in Philippians 3, verse 11, Paul is simply stating he doesn't deserve this. I don't deserve to receive glory. I don't deserve to be resurrected with Christ, but nonetheless, I am confident in that. I am thankful for that. Okay, listen, I don't have time to dive into the physical resurrection with you. I understand this is, there's a lot going on this morning, and I don't have time to really dive into this, but if you are interested in learning more about the resurrection, more about glory, then I would encourage you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Okay, if you want to read that some other time, do that. That is the place that you should go if you want to learn about the resurrection because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul spends the entire, and I say the entire chapter, talking about the resurrection in detail. Okay, that's all the information that you'll ever need to know, so I'm going to point you there. But with that being said now, I do want to highlight something to you in that chapter that I think is going to be helpful for you to understand as it relates to the resurrection. You see, in the chapter, Paul says that the resurrection... It's sort of like a seed in a flower. Okay? Resurrection, it's sort of like a seed in a flower. The flower comes from the seed, and the seed and the flower, they share the same DNA, yet when you compare the two together, they look very different. Now, don't they? Okay, so what's the point? Well, what Paul is saying is that right now, our bodies are a lot like that ugly seed. Okay, you're an ugly seed right now. No offense, that's just Paul's analogy. But get this, when this life passes away, okay, when, when, when you die, when you pass away, you're going to be like that beautiful flower that comes from that ugly seed. And that represents our glorious resurrected body. Now, what does that exactly look like? I, I'm not sure. But I can tell you this, it's going to be better than anything that we could imagine or picture. And it's a benefit. It's a benefit that we're going to one day receive if we are a believer in Christ. Paul says it like this. In that same chapter I just referenced to you in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, but it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. We may be like an ugly 
seed right now, but one day we're going to be a beautiful flower in our resurrected body. That is a great benefit that we have in Christ. Church family, I hope that you have understood this morning that as Christians, we belong to the greatest company and the greatest organization in the world. Our benefits, tremendous. Our retirement package, out of this world, quite literally. We're going to be in heaven one day with a resurrected body. We're going to be in in glory with Christ in heaven. See, Paul understood this. He made the decision to stop putting his faith in his job or in his lineage or in his works and his worldly treasures. Instead, he chose to put it squarely and solely in Christ and Christ alone. And these five benefits, that was the reward for Paul. He says, I consider everything else to be loss in comparison to these five benefits that I am receiving in Christ. So how about you? How about about you? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, personal Savior, as your Lord, personal Lord? Are you personally experiencing the, the benefits that Paul is talking about here? Are you saying, what in the world? I've never seen that. Which one would be true for you today? You see, only, only when you choose to put your faith in Christ can you be saved. Only once you put your faith in Christ can you experience these five benefits. Knowledge, position, righteousness, fellowship, glory. We've got a lot of decisions to make in life. Apparently 35,000 today. Let me give you two more. Which one are you going to choose? Trusting in yourself? Trusting in Christ? Belief that your good works are going to get you to heaven. Belief that Christ's good works are going to get you to heaven. Listen to me here. Each one of you, each one of you has to make that decision. Students, your parents cannot make that decision for you. Church, no one in this room can make that decision for you. That decision is between you and God. Which choice will you make? Let's pray.